Hey everyone and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we're going to be diving into episodes 227 through 229, which will be covering manga chapters 319 through 324. This is going to be a big one where we are properly introduced to one of the most intimidating forces of the world of One Piece, the Marine Admirals. So, without further ado, let's get into the synopsis. After running into Marine Admiral Aokiji, which has Robin shaken to her core, he and the Straw Hats help out a group of shipwrecked survivors. Aokiji then turns his attention to eliminating Robin for some unspecified reason. With the Straw Hats completely overmatched, it's up to them to save Robin and escape Aokiji, as well as make it to Water 7, which is their next destination. Alright, so differences. Obviously, the big one being the shipwreck survivor. So everything relating to that, most of that storyline was actually given to Tonji. So as I mentioned in the previous episodes, all of this still takes place on Long Ring Longland as opposed to this unnamed island. And all the things that Aokiji and the Straw Hats do to help the survivors, they actually do for Tonji. And so this is how he eventually gets off the island. And he catches up with the rest of his people by going to the other islands in Long Ring Long Land. Aokiji freezes the, you know, the island with his Ice Age. And then that's how he gets across. But because they decided to insert random fillers and then put this stuff back at the end of it. Which I don't quite understand why they couldn't have just done Long Ring Long Land as it was originally done and then just move those fillers after it just kind of I don't know it's a weird timing I'd say but another byproduct of the fact that this story was changed was for some reason they added this like weird tidbit of information concerning Yokozuna the giant frog that swims the survivors mentioned that their ship was originally attacked by Yokozuna the frog and Aokiji confirms that it's him And I don't necessarily mind the early introduction of him, but it sort of deludes the surprise of seeing him properly introduced because the concept of him is just so funny. But what I do have issue with is sort of the mischaracterization that happens to him because of this. Without spoiling too much, Yokozuna probably wouldn't actually do this either by mistake or on purpose. Like he wouldn't just randomly run into or attack a passenger boat. Because there's a specific reason why he only duels the train. And we'll get into this more later on. But it just seems like it mischaracterizes Yokozuna as this sort of like crazy or even somewhat malicious, you know, frog that just haphazardly runs into a bunch of boats all of a sudden or tries to attack boats. And then, of course, another change that's added as a result of this is in the scene where they actually do see Yokozuna Usopp mentions not to take anything the admiral says seriously but in the manga obviously he doesn't say this because manga Aokiji makes no mention of Yokozuna at all another scene that's kind of added that really doesn't do anything or nor add or take away anything is when Chopper fantasizes the fact that he's like sliding down the the waterfalls in water seven when they first arrive and that's just like a little fun little tidbit to kind of add, I don't know, a couple seconds to the runtime? Yeah, it's, it's, it seems a little weird, but it's there. And then there are some scenes that are shifted around. So in the manga, Iceberg and the, the shipwrights actually get their introduction scene just before Luffy and Nami and Usopp rent the Yagara Bulls. 
But this was moved around to the next episode, which we don't see until, well, we won't talk about this until the next podcast. But this was mostly done for pacing issues because they probably wanted a whole episode dedicated to introducing and highlighting the shipwrights. Alrighty, so let's move into the episodes themselves. So I feel like these episodes are where One Piece really starts to get real and is put on a path to become a more intense series with higher stakes. And yeah, it increases everything to a much larger extent. Even the world building with the introduction of Aokiji and everything. But yeah, at least that's the feeling I get after this encounter with Aokiji. And I absolutely love it because it just seems like everything gets heightened so much. And you just really want to see like where the series goes from here because it kind of creates this sense of uncertainty because of that. And so it becomes much more interesting to watch every episode to see where does the series go from here. As mentioned in the last podcast, this is literally the first time we see Robin lose all composure in her calm facade and pretty much just see her panicking at the sight of Aokiji. She then goes on to explain the hierarchy at the top of the marine chain of command with the three marine admirals, Aokiji, Akainu, and Kizaru, with the fleet admiral Sengoku at the very top above them. So these guys and Aokiji are the second strongest beings in the entire marine force, which is wild to think because even someone like Smoker is still just a captain. So imagine what it takes to be an admiral level marine soldier. Like, yikes. They just ran into a crazy monstrous figure here. Also as a fun note here, these code names assigned to each admiral is a combination of colors and animals. So in Japanese, Aokiji is blue pheasant. Ao meaning blue, Kiji is a pheasant. We have Akainu, which means red dog, aka red is Aka, and Inu means dog. And then finally, we have Kizaru, which is yellow monkey. Ki being the shorthand for Kido, meaning yellow. And then Zaru, or Saru, meaning monkey. So when you add a prefix to Saru, you usually replace the S with a Z. So that's why you get that Kizaru um, name. That's also why, if you're a Dragon Ball Z fan, why the transformed Saiyans is called an Ozaru instead of Osaru. Just a little... Fun trivia for you there, for you DBZ fans out there. Moving on. Despite how utterly terrifying this moment is built to be, I love the comedy in this early interaction, like Usopp yelling him to go away, but his voice trailing off, so it sounds like, (laughs) and then he kind of hides away, to then Aokiji hitting on Nami randomly. And I absolutely love Aokiji's characterization here with this lackadaisical and almost nonsensical approach to everything. Like, this is one of the most dangerous and strongest antagonists in the series. And I just about lost it when he tells them to not to judge him on his looks. And then goes on to state that his motto as a Marine is lazy justice. And Sanji Nusopi just yelling back, that's exactly how you look. Also, sort of a translation note. Um, you may be wondering why I called it lazy justice, which is what he states his motto as. But in the Crunchyroll translation, they translate his motto as total slovenly justice, which slovenly means untidy or dirty, which I guess could work in this case. But the term that Aokiji uses in Japanese, the darakakita segi, which I feel is better reflected and translated as lazy justice, because for one, it better matches what Aokiji is like as a character and his actions and his motivations. Like, he's not untidy or dirty. He's actually in a very nice suit all the time and very presentable. 
But the way he approaches everything is just super lazy and lackadaisical to an extreme. Like, for example, he's seen lying around when he can. He doesn't like standing. He's too lazy to finish a thought when he can't come up with the words and just kind of gives up halfway. Or even do like a simple math calculation for the three bounties. He just gives up also because he doesn't want to do math. Like, he's just lazy. You know, just to name a few examples that we've seen just in the first couple minutes of his introduction. Plus, in my head, lazy justice sounds a hell of a lot funnier to apply someone uh, to to someone of his status. And so, yeah, I always just call it lazy justice. He goes on to reveal that his purpose for coming here was to track down Robin's whereabouts as he lost track of her after what happened in Alabasta. Because he seems to have some sort of a particular prior relationship with her. Not in a romantic sense, but just some sort of a connection. But at the moment, he seems to have no interest in capturing or dealing with the Strawheads, which is fortunate for them. Then randomly, a group of shipwreck survivors show up. And this is to reconcile in the story where Tonji was originally supposed to be the one Aokiji helps across the water. But now that this takes place on a completely different island and Tonji has already been saved by his grandson... They needed someone to be saved so that they can keep Aokiji's intro relatively consistent with what happens in the manga. Hisama managed to include elements from the coming arc by mentioning Yokozuna, the front-crawling giant frog, which is random, but okay. I mean, you know, like I mentioned in the differences section. One really funny part that comes out of this is Luffy freaking out and telling the shipwreck people that Aokiji isn't to be trusted as he's a marine. <laughs> and everyone's like, yes, and... And Luffy comes to the realization that, oh yeah, normally the marines are the ones to be trusted and they're the pirates that are the bad guys. And just the sincerity to which this moment is played off by Luffy is so funny. We then get the full display of the power that Aokiji has and the intro to my favorite devil fruit power and one that I want most personally. Like this is the de- If I could choose any devil fruit in the world of One Piece, I would want Aokiji's. As Aokiji in dramatic fashion creates a path for the survivors and instantly takes out a sea monster with his ice motherfucking devil fruit power and freezes the entire visible ocean with a technique called Ice Age. And yeah, this was a freaking chills inducing and that was pun intended. But seriously, this was shocking to see this kind of overwhelming power. Not even Crocodile and NL made you feel this dwarfed in terms of threat level and we're about to see just how much of a threat he really is, and the divide in terms of power between our heroes and this dude. We learn from Robin that his devil fruit is called the Hie Hie no Mi, or the chili chili fruit. Hie or Hieru means to get cold or get chili. And it's specifically called the Hie Hie no Mi because, instead of like what it means to be called ice in Japanese, which is Kori. But Kori is three syllables essentially and so all the devil fruits are two syllable words and thus that's probably why Oda chose to use here but just before we get to the threatening part we get an odd name drop of Luffy's grandpa out of nowhere and it seems like Luffy's grandpa is a friend or at least an acquaintance of Aokiji as he says Luffy and his grandpa are very similar in personalities with now Luffy being visibly shaken at the mention of his grandfather which led me to believe that perhaps Luffy's grandfather is a marine of some sort, of which we haven't yet met yet. Things start to turn for the worse, and this is the point in One Piece where the first time I started to kind of get scared and worried about the crew. 
there's just this overwhelming sense that things are about to get to a point that is just out of their league. I remember how chilling this entire portion of the story was for the first time, and this sense of dread that kept building, which credit to Oda did an amazing job with in terms of writing and introducing Aokiji, and, you know, introducing us to another wider part of the world of One Piece. It's also interesting to see that while the Marines and the world government still underestimate the Strong Hats, Aokiji seems to realize just how dangerous they could eventually become, and all that particularly stems from Robin's presence in the crew now. He seems to be very well aware of Robin's life and patterns, and almost seems to caution the Strong Hats for trusting her, but of course they all come to her defense. But all this seems to really upset Robin as she loses control and just straight up attacks Aokiji with the train to Fleur and then clutches him and breaks him in half. But obviously as a Logia fruit user, he just regenerates. As Aokiji prepares to take Robin's life, the monster trio come in to save her, but all three of them take out, get taken out in an instant, getting their limbs frozen. With this, this is like a massive deal. Like, even to this day, seeing those three all absolutely powerless against one guy is not something you'd ever expect to see. And this now plants in your head just how utterly powerful Aokiji is and just how much danger they're all in right now. I mean, I still remember reading this moment for the very first time, getting chills all over my body and thinking to myself, oh my god, how are they going to survive this and how do you beat someone like that? Like, I know because it's a shonen anime series that no one's really going to die, but I honestly, for the first time in this series, really felt like that there may be some dire consequences or a real danger for our main characters awaiting for them after this encounter. I mean, just the sheer panic in everyone is palpable as Usopp and Chopper are left frozen in terror, Nami unable to do anything other than to just yell at Robin to run. I mean, they're all absolutely helpless for the first time. As Aokiji moves in to attack Robin, there's a really small but important beat just before that where Aokiji implies that even though she's met a great group of Nakama, that she's still who she is from the past. And that's someone that's out for herself and will eventually backstab the, the Straw Hats when it becomes inconvenient to be with them. But the way Robin responds, just before she is apparently about to be killed, and how she desperately tries to say that she's not like that anymore, really breaks my heart. Because up till now, and I've mentioned this in past episodes, there's always been this distance between her and the crew, in a sense that you couldn't really fully trust her. And Zoro certainly has you know, not really trusted her. But between what we've seen at the end of Skypiea, her having fun and smiling with the crew, and her last words before she thinks she's going to die, that she no longer wants to live a life like she did in the past. And it shows us that she really has grown to love being part of this crew and being with her nakama. With everyone unable to do anything to help, Aokiji encases Robin's entire body in ice. And I love the little bit of misdirection in the anime in particular, that they did by utilizing the fact that Robin and Aokiji's sleeves are very similar colors, and they make you think maybe he only froze her partially, but it turned out that's Aokiji's arm and that Robin was in fact frozen fully. And the gravity and stakes of this moment cannot be understated. Like, just how insane this moment is when compared to the series and what has come thus far. It was a real wake-up call as to just how much they still had to go as a crew. Just like with the remaining Shibugai like Doflamingo and Kuma, we now see the Marines have just as terrifying forces against them, awaiting them further into the Grand Line. And I'd say this is even more 
just shocking seeing what Aokiji has just done. Because, I mean, even that scene where Crocodile impales Luffy in the desert still doesn't compare to just the, the sheer danger that this presents. Like, it, Crocodile was definitely overwhelmingly strong, but there was still a sense that even after Luffy gets impaled, that Luffy could actually take Crocodile. There was sort of this shred of hope because you see him grab Crocodile's arm with the water and you start to realize, oh, there may be a chance of beating him. But with Aokiji, it just seems like the way they set him up here, he just seems like an unstoppable force and is just way out of their league in terms of strength and power. Obviously, you know, you could use fire to combat ice. But at the same time, it's like, how do you... There's no way you can produce that much fire to combat that much ice unless you're ace. And that's an interesting thing that, that I kind of considered too. It's like, well, what happens when Aokiji runs up against ace? And so you kind of like run through your head. Well, uh, maybe they're going to use ace against Aokiji or whatnot. At least that's what went through my head at the time. The other thing to note here is that the scene from the opening, the Kokoro no Chizu opening, is missing here. So in the opening, it's depicted as Luffy punching Aokiji, and Aokiji grabs his fists and freezes his arm. But in the, in the anime and in the manga, Luffy actually punches Aokiji's gut and is frozen as a result. And I'm sure they edited this to not give away the surprise that he actually takes all three monster trios in one shot. But I feel like if you're going to hide that fact, why even include Aokiji in the opening? Like, why would you even spoil that surprise to begin with? So... I mean, I guess they wanted to sort of set that up and for manga readers kind of entice them into thinking, oh, Aokiji's going to look awesome, which he does. Aokiji then sets his sights on breaking and killing Robin, deeming it to be better for the world to not have her in it. Luffy somehow manages to save her and then Usopp comes out of nowhere and runs and grabs Robin. And again, I think one thing that's lost about this moment is that Usopp risked his life to get up close to Aokiji to save Robin. It's played as a joke, but, but again... That's Usopp being insanely courageous to get that close to someone that could instantly kill him just to save his nakama. Because that's the kind of guy Usopp is. Like when it comes down to it, he runs and screams and everything. But when you really need him, he is there and he gets the job done. And again, this just goes back to my sort of love of Usopp and sort of the hate that he gets unnecessarily, at least for now. But speaking of the fact that this kind of moment was played for a joke a little bit, I always laugh at how Usopp is laughing in this moment after getting Robin and celebrating with Nami and Chopper in the distance. How he seems to sound like a, a monkey chanting. It's like, ooh, 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 ooh. Like, it's really weird, but it's really funny for some reason. And speaking of courage, a bit later on, even Nami puts her life on the line to directly attack Aokiji to buy them some time to escape. Like, they all... You know, despite how scared Nanami, Usopp, and Chopper get, they all will put their life on the, you know, on the line, no questions asked, to save one of their own. And I think that's a very important key character trait that they all serve. And I like that it, it's basically put to the test here, and they all do so. Luffy, seeing the situation, orders Usopp and Chopper to get Robin back to the ship and treat her as well as shortly after, he rather smartly, as the captain, in order to save his nakama, he orders everyone to go back to the Mary, and that he wants to take on Aokiji one-on-one. -on -one. And you see that in a crisis, they do as they're ordered by Luffy. Even both Sanji and Zoro, who don't want to leave Luffy by himself to face down Aokiji, 
they still begrudgingly follow Luffy's orders. I also love that in keeping with Aokichi's character, even his threats stem from a place of laziness, as he mentions since he doesn't have a ship to arrest and transport Luffy, he's gonna have to kill him. It then cuts to Usopp and Chopper in the bath aboard the Mary, panicked and doing their best to thaw out Robin without damaging her. And I love this scene. This scene is really chilling and amazing because of the voice acting by Otani and Kakpe as you see them more panicked than they, you've ever seen any of them. Like this isn't just like the normal comedic panic like we're used to. This is clearly heavy and serious life or death type of terror we're seeing from them for the first time. At least I'd argue it's the first time. And yeah, seeing them this scared and panicked for the first time, it really kind of hammers home just the tone of the series kind of shifts a little bit. You know, it's still going to be this lighthearted adventure, but these moments seem to be just really heavy. And you sort of get the sense that the story is maturing a little bit as it continues on. With the other three returning to the Mary, Zoro and Sanji are desperate to thaw out their limbs and they jump into the ocean to try and rush back to help Luffy uh, under Chopper's orders. The very next scene is another great Zoro fulfilling his first mate duties scene as a second in command. As Usopp finds Sanji and Zoro on the deck and are back without Luffy, he starts to freak out that they just left him behind with Sanji getting heated that they had no choice but to follow the captain's orders. Usopp obviously doesn't understand that one bit and they start getting into a shouting match with Sanji but then Zoro puts an end to that real quick and calms the situation down a little bit bluntly putting together what the situation that they find themselves in and to prepare themselves for whatever outcome may come. I just love seeing these Zoro moments. They're so easy to miss on first viewing but upon multiple rewatches it really stands out just it just shows how vital Zoro is to the crew, not just as a combat, you know, for his combat skills, but for his composure and leadership, especially in times of crisis or during battle. Once we're back to the fight, we see that Luffy has taken several more hits and is frozen in a number of other spots, and in a last-ditch effort, he charges Aokiji and uses Gomu Gomu no Storm, but unlike how it went with Crocodile, which is the first and last time we've seen him use that move, it gets completely nullified as Aokiji just reforms around Luffy and completely freezes him as well. By the way, this panel in the manga is simply gorgeous, especially if you somehow get your hands on the digitally colored version from uh, Shueisha. And Oda uses a page and a half spread to really show as much detail of this moment as possible, and it looks amazing. But anyways, I'll, this really cements in our head just how much of a threat he really is and how outclassed Luffy is compared to Aokiji. The move that defeated Crocodile to a pulp is literally useless against Aokiji. However, Aokiji showing himself to be somewhat of a good and honorable guy relents to the fact that because the fight is over, it would be senseless and dishonorable for him to go after the crew now because he formally accepted a duel with Luffy. Aokiji mentions how Luffy was smart doing that, but then wonders if maybe Luffy actually thought he could beat Aokiji. And me personally, I think it was both. I'm sure Luffy was trying to save his crew, but also I don't think Luffy ever thinks he'll lose a fight. And so I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. As a final word, Aokiji leaves a message for Luffy saying that eventually Robin will grow too much for them to handle because of something surrounding her past and what she was born into. Then curiously, he mentions how he could kill Luffy here, but decides to spare him because he owes him for taking care of Crocodile and mentions the quote-unquote idiot smoker which I believe he must be referring to them saving Smoker and Rainbase and, and during the Alabasta Saga, which then leads to th me to think that Aokiji's probably a, a 
friend or at least a close friend with Smoker because that's the only way he would know that Luffy was the one that defeated Crocodile and moreover that Smoker was saved by Luffy and Zoro. You could make the argument that he knows because he's an admiral and would be privy to all of that information. But it seemed like the Marines really wanted to cover this up. So I would think aside from those involved and Sengoku, no one would be told what happened with Crocodile in Alabasta. Also, only Smoker would know about how he was saved in Rain Base. So they must have had somewhat of a closer relationship in order for someone like Smoker to share that with someone. Because it was a fairly humiliating moment for him. And that is why Aokiji has become another one of my favorite marines, as his devil fruit is so damn awesome and the one I'd want to have, but he's a marine that has a conscience and a moral code, which makes him automatically cool in my book. But with that, he leaves, but not before teasing us with the fact that the Straw Hat's next destination is called Water 7, and that they're getting close to the marine headquarters. We also finally understand how he's able to bike across the ocean. He just freezes a little path under the bike, which is pretty damn badass. <laughs> And with the manga Long Ring Long Land ending here, I want to quickly discuss the overall theme of this, but it's an important arc because as I mentioned in the past podcast episodes, when viewed together as one continuous story, the theme of both the debut back fight and this encounter with Aokichi becomes clear that it serves to highlight Luffy's desire and ability as a captain to protect his crew. The debut back fight establishes Luffy's desire and demonstrates in a microcosm of what it's like for each crew member to be threatened with being taken away from him, while their encounter with Aokiji really hammered home to the point that Luffy has got to do better. He's got to be stronger to protect those he cares for, especially his nakama, from people as dangerous as a marine admiral. And as we progress through the story, we'll see how this moment is the start of a long character development arc that will last quite a while. But this moment is an important moment in the series setting all of that up for Luffy. Which is why it bothers me so much that the anime just bungled this arc so badly in terms of just how they split it up, how they made the debut back fight almost unwatchable. And so a lot of people missed this sort of setup in terms of Luffy's growth. Anyways, getting back to the story though, with Zoro and Sanji arriving shortly after to rescue Luffy, we then cut to a few days later to the crew getting some rest with Luffy and Robin finally recovered. Things kind of settle down and we get something that we haven't seen in a while, which is the crew just hanging out and joking around, which is a pleasure to watch and some of my favorite moments in the series. And nothing highlights this more than the moment Zoro notices a giant frog freestyling or front crawling swimming. And... <laughs> Okay, first off, this moment is absolutely amazing. There's just something so absurdly funny as they all go wild after seeing this frog. And this is further enhanced by the awesome voice acting from everyone here, especially Kazuya Nakai as Zoro and Yamaguchi Kape as, as, um, as Usopp. Like, seriously, it's not often we get to see Zoro worked up over something, much less something outside of combat. But to see him completely blown away at the sight of this frog is so funny because of that juxtaposition in terms of what we expect Zoro to be and what he's actually doing, which is so ridiculous. And then there's Yamaguchi's amazing line reading of, Hey Luffy, are you actually taking that idiot admiral seriously? First off, we all know that frogs do front crawl. A frog is doing the front crawl. Like that line is so funny the way he reads it in in the Japanese version. How he goes, Like it's so funny how he says that. 
I can't. I I watch that scene or that moment so often because it makes me laugh so hard how he says that. And as if the scene can't get any better, Luffy obviously is majorly serious about catching up to the frog and even getting serious, like giving serious orders to everyone. There's a really funny line put into the anime that was never in the manga, but it's genius is Zoro's little comment. I don't know why, but I feel like we have to go after it. Like seriously, Zoro getting this insanely worked up over this frog is so damn funny no matter how many times I rewatch this episode or reread it. Because <laughs> it's just, I don't know what it is, but Zoro getting so worked up over this is so funny. Of course, the sudden direction change alerts Nami and the others to which she comes out to demand to know what's going on and the passion that Luffy displays explaining the situation and that his ultimate goal is to catch it and eat it is funny. But then you get Zoro and Chopper interjecting, you're going to eat that? And upon hearing this, Nami does not want to chase this frog. But then Sachi and Robin also somewhat get on board with the chase for various reasons, with Luffy calling out, full speed ahead, and everyone but Nami yelling, oh! <laughs> Nami explaining, where is this level of solidarity coming from? And this scene just keeps on giving in terms of comedy. However, before they reach the frog, they run aground on something and get stuck with what unbelievably sounds like a train on the water coming straight at them but with some quick thinking Nami manages to get them off the tracks and unstuck only to discover the frog standing on the tracks now staring down the train not moving at all and eventually gets hit and flung out to sea to everyone's shock and horror. After all the commotion the inhabitants or caretakers of the lighthouse that they're trying to get to near the train tracks comes out to investigate the commotion a little girl a cat and an older lady come out the little girl introduces herself as chimney and her again her cat gombe but clearly this is a rabbit and and the way it even says meow or nya in like a human way instead of like a natural it actually says nya as if to imply it's imitating a cat it's pretty funny and then her grandma kokoro she then goes on to explain what they just saw and that it was a steam-powered sea train called the Puffing Tom. She also explains to them and us the deal with the frog and that its name is Yokozuna and he's always challenging the train in a strength duel. And I love that Luffy gains massive respect for the frog now that he knows it's got some guts for challenging the train regularly and decides that he doesn't want to eat him anymore. <laughs> they learn from Kokoro that they're headed to an island called Water 7 where some of the world's best shipwrights are, and this plants in Luffy's head that that's where they're going to get their next nakama, a shipwright. And this is really exciting, as this is the first time in a while since they've, you know, that they've expressly entered an island with the intention of recruiting a new member. Not since Drum Island, all the way back when they got Chopper, and almost a hundred episodes since Robin essentially joined. And I remember how hype I, I and everyone, you know, in the community was that we were guaranteed a new crew member by the end of this arc. A new member is always a huge deal, and even to this day, there is a huge speculation and hype surrounding when there's a possibility of a new member joining. And this is when I feel like that sort of culture and practice really started. Since Robin was a complete surprise, and Chopper was still early enough that people weren't as anxious for new members, this sort of, I guess, hype that surrounds new crew members and the discussion and discourse that happens around who is going to join, it's really started with this arc. 
And on another side note, when Kokoro gives them the note to give Iceberg, Usopp explains, Kokoro-san, you have a big heart. It seems like a weird thing to say when thanking someone for just giving them a note, but that's because this is actually a Japanese wordplay. Kokoro in Japanese is heart or soul, so Usopp saying that someone named Kokoro has a big heart, that, that's the joke, is that because she has, her name is Kokoro, she must have a big heart. Anyways, once they're on their way to Water 7, they discuss what kind of person they want as their shipwright, and we get to see Luffy's terrible artistic skills yet again, which I love, as he makes this god-awful sketch of what looks like a 5-meter-tall clown with disproportionate limbs. <laughs> and we get a really sweet long shot of Robin as she smiles while observing all of this, and it really seems like she's feeling like she's finally found a home, which is really nice. In the next scene, we get Sanji and Usopp talking about the condition of the Mary, as well as a scene later, Zoro inadvertently bends the mast, which really sets up the stakes for needing to repair and save the Mary that will carry us through this arc. It's here when we get our first glimpses of Water 7, and it is gorgeous. Easily the best looking island of the series so far, at least in my opinion. I mean, it's clearly drawing inspiration from the real life location of Venice, Italy, with the city being built around a series of water canals and an infrastructure based around being partially submerged underwater. And by the way, I have to say, Water 7 is easily one of my favorite wardrobe designs for the crew, and I think it might be my favorite of the entire series, with Sanji's striped orange shirt and vest look, which is amazing. It's, it's a nice change from his sort of full-on suit, and I actually love Sanji in the vest. Similarly, Nami's sort of business attire look with the dark blue shirt and the tie is also easily my favorite Nami outfit in the, in the series as well. And then later on, I don't think this is really a spoiler because you see it in the Eternal Post ending if you're watching the Crunchyroll stream or even in the opening, but I also really like Robin's look here where she wears this sort of black leather um, dress or yeah dress and, and it looks really good. I think this is also another one of my favorite Robin outfits as well. And so yeah, just this entire look for the crew is really cool as well as you don't quite get to see it in Water 7, but there is going to be a slight wardrobe change for Luffy later on too. And I also really love that look. With that, Nami, Usopp, and Luffy venture into the city to exchange the gold for cash and look for the shipyard to find a shipwright to fix the Mary. And with that, we've now fully begun the next major arc of One Piece. However, before we fully dive into Water 7, next podcast, I want to quickly take a detour to cover Ace's cover story, which ended during the Long Ring Long Land arc in the manga by this point. So look for, forward to that next week. If you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at Podcast if you want updates of when I post new episodes or see some pictures of my manga collection. As always, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. And I will have a spoiler section if you'd like to stay for that. Um, If not, stay safe out there, and I hope to see you on the next episode. Bye! Alright, so spoiler section. There is a lot to unpack here in these episodes because it sets up a lot of different things. Um, First off, the major thing, like I mentioned, that this sets up Luffy's sort of giant character arc that'll take him all the way to post time skip um you know of him saving his crew members and his ability to save them 
it crops up when he's you know obviously when Robin and and Usopp are are basically detached from the crew when Robin defects and Usopp also leaves and so you know the crew basically falls apart for a time being during Water 7 and Aeneas Lobby and it's his ability to sort of learning to become a, a captain that can weather those kinds of storms and eventually the crew obviously gets back together they save Robin they get Frankie and yeah but this is tested time and time again throughout the rest of the series I feel like until he returns from his two-year gap, the two-year time, you know, skip. Because once they get to um, Savodi Island, that's when really Luffy's failure comes into play. He's unable to protect any of his crew, and they all get wiped out by Kuma and Sentomaru and the pacifistas. And that was a huge, huge wake-up call for Luffy. Like that was like the culminating defeat in this sort of his character arc where he it's that sort of that second act of that character arc where he just completely falls apart and then you know he comes back and again it's tested when he's trying to save ace now ace isn't a crew member of his but he is someone that he cares very deeply for and again he was too weak to save ace and you see that completely break down right there and obviously when he returns from the Marine Ford um, war, this is when he has to accept that he needs to get stronger and that he needs to be better. And, and you know, when he comes back from the two-year time skip, that's when you see the new Luffy and sort of the, the end to that character arc. Now, of course, Luffy still grows more and more and learns what it means to be a captain as he continues throughout you know the second half of the series post time skip but i feel like this arc from this moment all the way up to when he returns to sabodi to start the other half of the grand line or the new world essentially is sort of that culminating story where luffy just gets completely bombarded with dangerous threats to his crew and his family the next thing that really is set up here is obviously the whole storyline with Usopp and the Going Merry. And you kind of see that one scene where Usopp kind of slumps over after all the commotion with Aokiji. And you see him just wonder like what it's going to be like going forward. And you see Zoro just sort of saying, hey, just sleep it off. And Usopp's insecurity is starting to creep up here, which ultimately boils over with that confrontation in Water 7 where Usopp demands a duel between Luffy for the Going Merry because of the fact that, yeah, he can't, he can't, he doesn't feel like he can continue anymore because he can't keep up with these monstrous beings like Luffy and Zoro and Sanji. And he's not nearly as useful as Nami or Chopper. And so he feels left out and he feels insecure about his place with the crew. And you start to see that developing here as well. I mean, it's, been developing ever since Usopp joined the crew but at the same time I feel like this is the first time where he voices that and then speaking of the Mary obviously the going Mary has been sort of foreshadowed to be in danger for a while and now it's gotten to a critical point in these episodes where it does seem like the Mary is falling apart and in the very next episode when Kaku goes to investigate the ship it's clear that Mary is done like and it's a really sad moment and obviously and I, we've talked about this in that past spoiler sections but yeah 
The Going Mary's funeral is definitely one of the saddest moments ever. And and as sad as that is, I'm also looking very much forward to covering that moment as well because it is a huge moment. It's a very emotional moment and it is one of my favorite moments in the entire series despite how hard it makes me cry every time. The next thing I wanted to address was the the real reason Yokozuna fights the sea train. And this is why I kind of pointed out in the differences section why I didn't like the fact that they made Yokozuna out to be this sort of like reckless frog that just runs into ships and stuff is because Yokozuna fights the sea train for a very specific reason and a very like emotional one too. He fights the sea train because that is the thing that took Tom away from their family, from Iceberg, from Frankie, from Kokoro and Yokozuna. They all hate the fact that that's the thing that took Tom away to the NES lobby and they never heard from him ever again. And Yokozuna feels very emotionally and sad about that moment and which is why he continuously tries to get strong enough to be able to stop the train so that if anyone were to ever be taken away again he could actually stop the train this time and like when you see that it's such a, a huge like moment for Yokozuna and like and it just makes you really like reevaluate how you look at Yokozuna and it's just like wow and I and I just don't like the fact that they kind of like trivialize that a little bit with the sort of the inclusion of the fact that Yokozuna is just sort of this bumbling like frog that likes to attack vessels for no reason it seems like. But there is a very very good reason why he does that and a very like emotionally impactful one too. And so it kind of like takes away from Yokozuna's story I feel like there, there's there is an emotional component to that. Now, ultimately, I think for most viewers, by the time you get to the part where you do see Frankie's flashback with Tom and everything and Yokozuna, like, you're going to forget that moment. So it's not really going to weigh on you too much, but I don't like um, upon rewatch you really see the fact that, yeah, why did they include this and take away from sort of Yokozuna's character? I, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, Yokozuna is not a very, like, huge character or, or nor has like a huge impact but it is a very emotional storytelling beat and there you know i i personally really like yokozuna like from obviously i really love his introduction but i lo also like finding out more about this frog and like he's not just this one-dimensional sort of comedy bit that he is a real character and has some dimension to him and then the last thing i wanted to talk about is luffy's terrible drawing and what you know of what kind of a shipwright that he wants and the funny thing is is this his drawing turns out to be eerily accurate to what frankie actually looks like down to the color scheme the disproportionate like limbs and body shape the fact that he's like five meters tall now i don't think frankie's five meters tall but he's much taller than anyone in the crew and to luffy's credit luffy or frankie eventually does get to be huge and I think he does get to be like five meters tall, at least once, you know, post time skip when he modifies his body or at the very least when he's in General Frankie, like the Frankie Shogun, that suit is clearly over five meters tall, way over five meters tall. So he's huge. And yeah, I think um, it's just funny how Luffy's terrible drawing turns out to be correct. Now, obviously, Oda drew that with the knowledge of what Frankie would eventually look like because... 
I mean, he, he must have had it in his mind what Frankie was going to look like. So I'm sure that was intentional. But it is funny looking back at that scene and Luffy's sort of like nonsensically like ugly ass drawing turning out to be somewhat true. So Luffy eventually got what he wanted, uh, which is usually the case. But yeah, I always th- I always found that really fun. But anyways, that's pretty much most of the spoilers that I wanted to talk about. Obviously, there is a lot more that's sort of brought up here in these episodes with like Robin and Ohara and sort of her relationship with Aokiji. But I don't really want to talk about that too much here in the spoiler section because we're going to obviously go over a lot of that when those events occur. But yeah, with that, we'll bring this episode to a close and I will see you on the next one. Bye.